What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today, we're going to be talking about how Mount Everest became such a huge and dangerous business. Now, some of you might already know that the spring climbing season for Mount Everest just ended last week, but this might be the deadliest season on record. So today, I'm going to break down everything you need to know, including how Mount Everest became so popular, the crazy amount of money each person spends on the trip, how much the Sherpas are making, and why it's become such a cash cow for the local government. I really enjoyed researching this topic, and I think you're going to find it fascinating. So let's get right into it. All right, I want to start this episode by telling a quick story. Some of you may have already seen this, so apologies in advance, but I think you need to know the details to get some context on Mount Everest and, and where things are today. So last month, a Nepali Sherpa named Jelji was guiding a Chinese client up Mount Everest when he spotted another climber in danger. So essentially, he was doing a private climb with one other person. This person probably paid $100,000 for this climb. He sees another climber struggling. This Malaysian climber that he sees was pushing for the summit at 8,300 meters, roughly the cruising altitude of a large commercial airplane. And he was left dead by others in negative two degree Fahrenheit weather. So Jelji runs over to the climber, ends up wrapping him up in a thermal blanket. He ties what, a, what is essentially bungee cords around him to keep him super tight and not let any air in. He then gives him his oxygen tank, puts him on his back, and hikes him six hours down the mountain to safety. Six hours down the mountain. The video is absolutely incredible. The guy's name on Instagram is Jelji Sherpa. You can watch it on there. It's unlike anything I've ever seen. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. So, the other side of this, obviously, is that Jelji had to cancel the private summit with his Chinese client when they were just 500 meters from the summit. His client graciously agreed to do this. Obviously, the other man's life was more important, even though this trip probably cost him 100 to maybe $150,000. But Jelji ends up getting the Malaysian climber down the mountain. He ends up getting him in a helicopter. He gets put in a hospital. He's now released from the hospital, and he's completely okay. He's fine. No long-term problems, anything like that. And he saved the person's life. So his decision to run over to him and, and end up saving his life is certainly noble. But the reason I tell you this is because it also displays the sobering reality of what the world's tallest mountain has become. Nearly 1,000 people will attempt to summit Mount Everest this year alone. These climbers, whether qualified or unqualified, will purchase flights, book accommodations, get permits, gear, and expert level Sherpa guidance, and they'll typically spend upwards, on average, of $50,000 per trip between all those things, right? And I'll run you through kind of the, the cost of this in a second, but $50,000 the average person spends. This makes Mount Everest a vital part of the Nepali economy. Sherpas, which you can think of as basically local experts of the mountainous terrain, earn between $5,000 and $8,000 during each climbing season, which typically lasts about two months. This is roughly equivalent to the average annual salary in Nepal. So for the entire year, they're basically making that in two months. And the local government makes a lot of money too. This year, 478 foreign climbers came and they collectively paid more than $5 million in permit fees alone. So again, 478, nearly 500, we'll call it, foreign people came into the country and paid about $11,000, depending on where you're coming from fee to climb the mountain. And that amounts to over $5 million in permit fees alone, not counting anything else. But while the 2023 spring climbing season on Mount Everest was financially successful for the Sherpas, the travel companies, and obviously the government, it was also somewhat of a 
disaster. For example, there have already been 12 climbers pronounced dead this season, and another five are still missing. So if you were to add those two up, these five have been missing for weeks at this point. Many of their families have actually already done funerals for them and other things like that. So if we're able to add those up and say 17, if potentially none of the other ones are found, that makes 2023 the most deadly season in Mount Everest's 70-year climbing history. And more importantly, it begs the question, what does the future of the world's tallest mountain really look like? So to understand kind of where Mount Everest is today and where they're headed, I think it's probably important to give a little bit of history. Now, the public's fascination with Mount Everest goes back several decades at this point. The Himalayan mountain, it's bordered by Tibet, which is an autonomous region of China in the north, and Nepal in the south. It's recognized as the world's tallest mountain. In 1841, it received that distinction. It was a British research team led by someone named Sir George Everest, who the mountain was obviously later named after in 1865. Then more than 100 years later, after it was discovered and named as the world's tallest mountain, an expedition team set out to summit Everest for the first time. Now, there were competing teams doing this. There was a Swiss crew, there was a British crew, and there were some other people. The British crew brought 350 porters, 20 Sherpas, and tons, tons, tons of supplies. It was like a huge thing. And they conquer Everest for the first time ever, just barely beating the Swiss. The Swiss team, I actually think, was near the summit probably like two to three days prior, but the weather made them go back down. The British crew goes back up. And there was two climbers that were part of that crew, a New Zealand explorer named Sir Edmund Hillary and a Sherpa mountaineer named Tenzing Norgay. They summit the mountain in 1953. They only spend 15 minutes on top of the mountain before returning to town. And when they got back down to town, they, they descend the mountain and go back down. They face an immense amount of public interest. Everyone can't believe it. It's one of the greatest feats they've ever seen. Everyone has questions. So there's this quote here from Sir Edmund Hillary when he told National Geographic, this was only a few years ago before he passed. He said, when we came back down towards Kathmandu, the town, there was a very strong political feeling, particularly among the Indian and Nepali press, who very much wanted to be assured that Tenzing was first. That would indicate that Nepali and Indian climbers were at least as good as foreign climbers. We felt quite uncomfortable with this at the time. So he and Tenzing had a little meeting and we agreed not to tell anyone who stepped on the summit first. Essentially, they took equal credit saying we both did it at the same time. I'm not going to tell you who was first, whatever. Because as small as the distinction as it was saying, you know, he took three more steps before I did, they were trying to give credit to one over the other, and both of them agreed that that wouldn't be fair. So again, neither here nor there. They summit the mountain in 1953. It was a huge, huge, huge accomplishment. It brought a lot of press and uh, exposure to the mountain and the region, and it kickstarted a multi-decade obsession with Mount Everest. All right, everyone, quick interruption from today's episode to talk about the sponsor of this podcast, ButcherBox. I've been ordering from ButcherBox for a few years now, and it's the single best solution I've found to save time while guaranteeing the quality of your food. Everyone probably knows what ButcherBox is, but they deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your doorstep. It's literally that easy, and it tastes incredible. So ditch the butcher lines today and guarantee the freshness of your meat with ButcherBox. And here's the best part. If you sign up today, ButcherBox is offering all of my listeners two pounds of ground beef for free every time they order over the next year. Let me say that again. Two pounds of ground beef every time you order over the next year, you get for free. So go to butcherbox.com slash JoePomp and use code JoePomp, all caps, JoePomp at checkout to get that discount today. 
If you fast forwarded to today, Mount Everest is now the world's most popular mountain. It stands at over 20,000 feet, 20,032 feet, which is basically 8,900 meters and is one of just 14 peaks on the planet that stands taller than 8,000 meters. So some of you have probably seen the movie 14 Peaks where NIMS summits all 14 peaks in the shortest amount of time in history. Those are the 14 peaks. Mount Everest is the most popular of those peaks. It's the tallest mountain in the world, and it stands over 20,000 feet. It's actually not the tallest mountain in the world. There's one other that majority of that mountain is actually below sea level. So the distinction with Mount Everest is that it's above sea level, right? The tallest mountain above sea level, 20,032 feet. More than 80% of all summits of Mount Everest occur during a two-week stretch in May. This is primarily due to two reasons. One, outside of those two weeks, it sits in a jet stream, the summit, which brings along like 200 mile per hour plus winds and low temperatures the rest of the year that can reach negative 30 degrees Celsius. And the average cost for a place on a commercial Everest team is nearly $50,000. So what I mean by that is if you want to sign up and you want to go up with Sherpas and do the whole thing, the average person pays $50,000 to do that. Now, there's a cheaper way to do it. The minimalist approach, which they call it, costs about $20,000. So the cheapest way you could possibly do it is about $20,000, which obviously isn't the safest, but the cheapest is $20,000. And then private climbs that include everything from experience called celebrity Sherpas, unlimited oxygen tanks, training, nutrition plans, you know, everything that you could possibly want costs upwards of $200,000. So again, the average plan to go climb this mountain, Mount Everest, is $50,000. You can do it for $20,000, but some people are paying $100,000, $200,000, depending on the kind of experience that they want. And I wrote out in the newsletter, there's a laundry list of things that you're actually paying for, but I want to just read through a few of them to give you an idea of like where the costs add up. So a climbing permit to climb Mount Everest is $11,000. To get that climbing permit, you have to pay a $400 fee for the permit. Then there's an officer who overlooks your case and all that kind of stuff, $500 to them a $100 tourist visa. There's a refundable trash deposit of $650, which is essentially you have to bring a certain amount of trash off Mount Everest when you come down and you get the money back, which we'll get to in a second and why that's important. Personal climbing gear, the average person spends about $6,000 on gear, $2,000 on a flight, $500 on a hotel before you actually go to the mountain. Then you have to take another flight actually to Lukla, I think is how you pronounce it, $350 there. Your equipment transport there is $350. Food and lodging on the base camp, $350. Food at base camp on the mountain for four weeks, $2,500. You're paying $5,000 for oxygen tanks. Then a mask and a regulator is another $2,000. For someone to carry the oxygen is $1,000. A tent on the mountain is $3,000. Then you're paying a bunch of different Sherpas, right? So your load Sherpa, what they call it, is the person that carries the supplies on the mountain for you is $3,000. A cook, so the chefs that are cooking the people, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every night is $2,000 per person. A climbing Sherpa, so the person actually going up the mountain with you is $5,000. A guide team or a leader is $6,000. Again, there's there's a bunch of other stuff too. So there's bonuses. The bonuses are actually handed out depending on certain milestones that you reach. They amount to about $1,200 per person. You're buying trip insurance, another 600 bucks, medical insurance, 400 bucks. And then they call it like general spending money. You should bring a thousand bucks on the town just for kind of general spending at other places. So again, $50,000, the average person is spending. And while that may seem like an incredibly high cost for mountaineering, more than 900 people, including Sherpas, are expected to climb Mount Everest in 2023 alone. 900 plus people. 
right? About half of that, call it almost 500, is foreigners, people that are not Sherpas. The other half are Sherpas. But 900 people are climbing Mount Everest in 2023 alone. This is primarily, again, due to two reasons. One, it's the world's tallest mountain. I think a lot of people just want to say they climb the world's tallest mountain and be able to tell other people about it. Whether experienced or not, it's one of those bucket list items where you can say, I climb the world's tallest mountain. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I thought it was freaking awesome. <laughs> it's not necessarily something that I go around bragging about all the time, but I could see why people want to do it. One, for the thrill of it, but two, to be able to tell other people and, and have you know some pride in yourself that you climb the world's tallest mountain. But secondly, they pick Everest and Everest has become really popular because it's the easiest of the 14 peaks probably, or one of the easiest. It has fixed ropes, it has ladders, it has you know permanent camps at this point, and it's become one of the clear and safest options of the 14 peaks. So I put a chart in the newsletter today that you can go and see, but I'll, I'll give you kind of an audio version of it here, which is the idea of how much this has accelerated in the last few years. So again, the first ascent of Mount Everest was done in 1953 by two people. In 19, like 74, 75, the first woman from Japan, Junko, became the first woman to climb Mount Everest. Then the first ascent without supplemental oxygen was done in 1978. Between those years, from call it 1953 to the early 1990s, there was only at most, at most, like 10 to 15 people climbing this mountain every year. Most years, there was like none, maybe one to two to three to five, and at most, like 15. And then when the 90s hit, it was an explosion explosion, explosion, explosion. We went from 10 to 15 at most climbing the mountain to by the mid 2000s, we were up over 200, approaching 400. There was a short of a break in the 2010s due to an earthquake. And then obviously the pandemic slowed things down in 2020. They actually shut down the mountain altogether. But this year we went from doing, call it like mid 600s in the 2010s to now we're doing 900, more than 900. So it's straight up into the right. This bar graph just looks like a freaking, you know, AT&T or whatever bar chart on your phone. And it's just straight up into the right. It's ascending. It's not slowing down at all. So it's gotten very, very, very popular from the amount of people that are trying to do this. So this upswing in popularity is turning Mount Everest into an increasingly dangerous adventure. For example, 900 plus climbers this year is 10 times more than what Mount Everest saw in the early 1990s. So 10 times more climbers are climbing now than they were just you know, 20, 30 years ago. And with the weather limiting summit attempts to just a few days per year. So the easiest way to think about this is that the majority of people are climbing within a two-week span in May, Mount Everest. And when there's bad weather, you get backed up. So people are just waiting at base camp trying to go make the summit. And then when you finally get a good day of weather, everyone goes to do it at once. And this makes the world's tallest mountain extremely overcrowded. This is very apparent when you look at the amount of trash that's accumulating on Mount Everest. The average person they they estimate leaves about 18 pounds of trash behind. Each person leaves 18 pounds of trash behind. And more than 100,000 pounds have been removed in the last three years alone. Literally 100,000 pounds of trash have been removed from the mountain over the last three years alone. And essentially what people are saying is it hasn't even made a dent. They call it the world's highest garbage dump because there's just trash everywhere at this place now because of how crowded it's gotten. This overcrowding is even more obvious when the weather is poor and hundreds of people are all forced to attempt the summit of Everest at once. Now, there's this famous photo from Nims Perja, who again did 14 peaks, and most of you might have know who he is by now. But actually, in the documentary, he talks about this photo. And he took this photo in May of 2021, so the May season in 2021. And it's at the Hillary Step, which is above Camp 4. It's right before you take the summit. So it's very close to the summit. You can actually see the summit. And the photo is iconic. 
because it looks like a line at Disney World. It's just people. It's people, 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 one after another in a single file line, just straight up the mountain, hundreds of people probably, right? There has to be hundreds of people in this photo. And the reason why this is so crazy is because it's already a very dangerous section of the mountain because the air at this level, we're talking almost 29, 30,000 feet in the air. You're literally right below the summit. That air contains just 30% of the oxygen at sea level. So it's one third of the oxygen that you're getting at sea level which is obviously very dangerous. You have to use oxygen at these levels. The Hillary Step, the area where this picture was taken, you guys are, all have probably seen this picture by now. The Hillary Step becomes much more difficult when there's one-way traffic jam on a cliff, right? You can literally fall to the right, fall to the left, and you could get seriously injured or die. And you're blocking people on their descent, right? So when someone goes up to the summit, you're basically just going up there and you're getting right back down. You don't want to get up there. You don't want to have altitude sickness. There could be an avalanche. There could be falling rocks or an ice on your way back down. There's exhaustion. There's a bunch of different things that you can experience. Excess fluid in the brain, fluid in the lungs, countless things that you have to be worried about when you get up there. So they don't want you more up there in more than five, 10 minutes at the summit and then you're back down, especially when there's other people waiting. But the problem is that the Hillary step, when there's this many people waiting in a line to go, there's nowhere for people to go on their way back down. So it's a huge traffic jam and you're potentially blocking people on their descent and leaving them stranded 8,000 plus meters, almost 30,000 feet in the air in cold temperatures, potentially in the dark without spare oxygen tanks. So again, it's super, 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 super dangerous. And it's only gotten worse over the years because one, they're allowing more people to go They're They're putting out more permits there. And the weather has gotten really bad where this year they claim it was the coldest year on record for the mountain. And it limited the number of days that people could go up and actually summit. So again, there's been huge backlogs. There's more videos coming out this year and photos coming out this year of people just waiting in these lines, hundreds of people. And you have to remember, right? These ropes are already there. You know, everything's already in place. You're not doing any of that. You're basically just strapping yourself in and going up. Sure, there's still some skill level required to it, but there's a lot of people who are now saying, oh, I can go do Everest, you know, even if they've climbed one mountain or two mountains or three mountains. So I'll get to in a second why that's important and how that might change. But these things, like the overcrowding, like all this other stuff, it causes a chain reaction, I think is the easiest way to think about it. So for those that don't know, there's 200, over 200 dead bodies that are permanently residing on Mount Everest. Literally, some of them are used as markers. They use them as markers so you know where to go. But there's over 200 bodies that are on Mount Everest that are just going to stay there. And the reason for this is because it's extremely expensive to get bodies down. In some cases, it's been you know rumored that these things cost $70,000 or more to get bodies off the mountain based on, on rescue efforts and what's required to do that. And it's obviously very dangerous too, right? If you have people that can barely go make the summit, and it's dangerous enough to do that. Imagine trying to go get another body and haul it down. It's obviously very dangerous. So what happens is if you're above a certain level, what they call the death zone, they just leave your body there, right? If someone's not able or willing to be able to take you down. So there's 200 plus bodies that are you know, obviously dead, but are permanently residing on Mount Everest, which is obviously a chain reaction from what's happening here. But also we've seen a mass exodus of Sherpas, right? The, the experts, the people that are supposed to be guiding these tours, a lot of them have either retired or quit or whatever it is over the years because there's obviously a risk, right? 3% of the people that go up this mountain die. And that drastically outweighs their life insurance policy. So the way that life insurance works for the Sherpas on the mountain is they have a $15,000 life insurance payout and a $4,000 medical insurance payout. So it's not that great, first off, but it was even lower historically. It was the, the total payment was $4,000 at once. Then it got bumped to $10,000. And then it got bumped to $15,000 after an ice avalanche killed 16 Sherpas in 2014. 
So now it's at $15,000 life insurance policy. And if you get hurt for disability coverage or whatever, you're getting $4,000 for medical coverage for medical bills, which again, compared to the GDP per capita in Nepal, which is $1,200, it seems like a decent amount, but obviously it's not. And the reason why it's not is because these Sherpas are supposed to be supporting their family, right? They're the head of the household. They're the ones that are going out and are earning income. And if they unfortunately pass away or they get hurt or they have medical bills, $15,000 or $4,000 for medical bills is not enough, right? Especially if you think about the family is going to live on for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 more years, and they're supposed to be providing for the wife, the kids, whatever it is. So it's obviously a dilemma there that they're having to deal with. And it's one of those things that will most likely change if we get to a point where there's more Sherpas quitting than there are coming in. But it's not like people aren't asking for changes to be made, right? There's plenty of changes that could potentially be made. And I think people have looked at and have been questioning, right? One of them is implementing higher qualification standards. So one of the problems right now is there's people that are not experienced trying to go climb Mount Everest. Some of the firms that are only charging, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 to get you on the mountain don't care about your experience. They just want to make money. They want to bring you up there and they see it as they're collecting a fee. And then there's other companies that want to ensure and make sure that you have the ability to go climb this mountain. So they're doing physical fitness tests, they're doing medical tests, whatever it is. And the mountain does require a medical test before you go and climb the government, but it's not that strenuous and people can pass it, right? One of the ideas that they've played with and people have asked for is to implement a rule like China has. So China, when you cross in on their side of the border, on the Tibet side, which is again, an autonomous region of China, governed by China, they require all of their citizens to summit an 8,000 meter peak before attempting Everest. So you have to have proof that you actually went and you summited another 8,000 meter peak before going to try Everest. Now, they don't require this of foreigners, but their own citizens, Chinese citizens, they require them to show proof that they summited an 8,000 meter peak. That seems, you know, obviously everyone can't go do that. There's only 14 of them in the world, but it's one of those things where it obviously proves that you're probably somewhat qualified and you have the ability to go do Everest. So that's one thing that people have asked to be implemented. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but it's an interesting idea nonetheless. And then like there's smaller stuff too. You could just increase the quantity of safety crews on the mountain. One of the other ideas that's been put out there is if you look at other mountains and specifically some of the other 14 peaks, there's one Denali in Alaska. They have rangers stationed on the peak throughout the season that essentially are just there to help with rescues, right? And it lightens the load and it makes sure people are more safe and you're able to make more rescues and save more people and less people die. And that's another thing, right? If you're making all these monies on, on permits and everything else alongside that, can you not just put some more security and people around there, right? I get it's dangerous. You can only do so many helicopter rides and so forth. I think they said this past year, there were over 200 helicopter rescues, which, you know, some of this is like, you're just bringing people to other areas. Some of this is literally life-saving rescues. You're, you're flying the helicopter up to certain regions and you can't go all the way up to the summit. So there's, you know, again, certain regions where you can take it in certain regions where you can't, but 200 helicopter rides over essentially a month, less than that is pretty crazy. It's essentially the helicopter is running nonstop every single hour of the day. But my point is pretty simple, right? You could put other security measures in place that probably make it a little bit safer than it is today. But still, well, the most obvious solution is probably just to limit the number of permits being handed out each year. I wouldn't expect that to happen anytime soon. As I said before, Mount Everest is a huge, 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 huge economic driver for Nepal. It's bringing in hundreds of wealthy tourists every single year, if not thousands and tens of millions of dollars in revenue just from permits alone, right? We're not counting all the other economic activity that flows in from this stuff. If you want to add all of it up, it's probably in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars in economic activity that we're seeing from Mount Everest alone every single year, even though there's only a couple weeks a year that you can actually summit the mountain. 
It's a huge boom for the economy. And it's one of those things that I just don't see them changing, right? Maybe we get to a point where you say, hey, look, a thousand's the limit, 1200's the limit. I don't know. But we're getting pretty damn close to that point now where you look back and you say, when is enough enough, right? We're seeing these long lines. People are posting photos of it. Nims is posting it. We're seeing them all over online on social media. All these Sherpas have Instagram accounts now. They're like semi-famous. Jelji, the guy who I spoke about earlier who uh, saved the person, he was in Nim's documentary. He was on the team. He was on the team for 14 Peaks. So he's an amazing climber. I think he said that he's climbed, I want to say it was 13 of the, yeah, he's a 13-time 8,000-meter summiter. So he's climbed you know, one of those 14 peaks or multiple of those 14 peaks 13 times which is really, really, really impressive. He's the youngest person to climb K2 in the winter, which again is really, really, really impressive. And he was part of NIMS team. So you have this weird dichotomy now where the government is not going to limit things. They're not going to change things drastically because they're making a lot of money on it. It's a big boom for the economy. There's several businesses that rely on this thing every year, Mount Everest and the climbers that are coming to do it for their economic activity. And I wouldn't expect anything to change, although... If the mountain does keep getting more crowded and more crowded and more crowded and the death rate hikes up, right now it's around 3% chance of death. About half of them are Sherpas and half of them are people that are coming to to climb Mount Everest. If that does start to tick up, right, and we see even the, just the overall count, right, 17 was this year. If we see that creep into 20, 25, 30, right, and this starts to get crazy, then my guess is they're going to be forced to do something because the backlash is just going to be too crazy. All right. That's it for today. I want to talk about one more thing real quick. It's on the same topic. So what the extra credit is today is there's like this ongoing race to become what we'll call the king of Mount Everest. So there's this guy. He's a Sherpa guide, Kami Rita. He's 53 years old. He currently holds the record for the most summits of Mount Everest at 28. So he's climbed Mount Everest 28 times. But he's in this middle. He's in the middle of an ongoing battle with another Sherpa and his friend, Pasan Doawa, who is also trying to obtain the world record for the most summits. So Dawa tied Rita's world record, I think it was last month or two months ago during this climbing season, and he tied it at 27. So Kami Rita literally went out three days later and climbed Mount Everest again. <laughs> he literally was like, oh, you want to tie my record? I'm just going to go again. So they're going back and forth now. They're literally just every time they get a chance, they go out and they climb and they climb and they climb and they climb, just trying to one-up each other. So Kami Rita is 53 years old. I don't know how much longer he can do this for. But him and his buddy are essentially going back and forth just climbing to determine who can hold the record for the most summits. And it's not just for pride either. The interesting part about this is the agencies that they work for offer them monetary bonuses for each summit record they achieve, right? So every time they go climb it again and they obtain the world record or they tie the world record or whatever it is, they're getting paid a bonus for doing that. And the reason is pretty simple because having a record holder on staff is obviously a good marketing tool for tourist climbers. So again, the people that are coming to, to some of these mountains want to be guided, right? The people that are willing to pay $100,000, $150,000, $200,000, they want the best of the best care. So if you're one of those agencies and you're one of those exploration guides, you want to have the best Sherpas on your team. And that's why they're paying them bonuses to be able to say, look, we have the guy that's leading you. He summited this mountain more than anyone else in the world, more than anyone else in history. That's obviously very, very, very powerful. But look, we'll see what happens on this stuff. It's obviously very interesting. The climbing season is over for now. We'll see what happens next year. But this is one of those things that I think we need to keep our eye on because it's becoming more apparent over the years that the number of people attempting this every single year is getting to become too much. So we'll see more videos. We'll see more videos of the trash. We'll hear more about it. But ultimately, I think at some point, the government of Nepal will have to do something about it.
All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to this. I really appreciate it. I had a bunch of fun researching this topic and writing about this topic and now podcasting about this topic. And I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Please share this episode with your friends if you got any value out of it. And we'll talk on Wednesday. Have a good day.